study them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we just walk through and learn what God has to say. At the end of the day, I think we all understand that um, as nice of people as we all might be, none of us really have the right answers for anybody. God has the right answers for everybody. And so our job is to dig into his word and see what it says and let his spirit take it to your life and use it uh, as you will surrender to its authority in your life. And so we're back to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter number 7, so you can open your Bibles and get ready there. Uh, just as a reminder, it's been a while since we've been in chapter 7. We started it with the first few verses in the beginning of July, so it's been four or five weeks now. Uh, the overall theme of the book of 1 Corinthians, we talk about the power of community, um, the idea that we've coined the phrase, we is greater than me. Um, when you focus what you do and you make decisions in your life with a selfish motive, when you make yourself greater than the body, um, you're going to have problems. And the book of 1 Corinthians is written to a church that had a lot of problems. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is not a book that is given primarily to reveal the core doctrines of the faith. That's the book of Romans. The book of 1 Corinthians is given to be the book that really gives us our practice and how to live it out. And its example is a church that struggles like a lot of us struggle. We should be very thankful for the book of 1 Corinthians because their problems often become our problems. Therefore, God's word to them can be God's word to us. And so we need to understand that in chapter number seven, and we've covered a lot of things in the first six chapters. Chapter number seven specifically clears off a space. It's fairly lengthy. We're going to take several weeks to work through it. It deals with the issue of marriage. And marriage is such a critically important part of our lives. We who are married, you who are not yet married, it will be a huge part of your life if and when it becomes a part of your life. And we began with the first nine verses on July 1st, seems like forever ago. Uh, dealing with some guidelines for a healthy marriage. And that is really important to know as we start off this chapter. Why? Because, well, a lot of marriages don't make it. Amen. A lot of marriages fail. Divorce today is a huge problem. And I know that statistics are always changing and they can be manipulated at times, but generally they're fairly stable concerning this issue of marriage, at least in the United States, the statistics run approximately like this. About 40% of people in their first marriage end up in divorce. Now that sounds like an incredibly high number. I want you to know that over the last few decades, it's actually improving. It used to be higher. And it's actually improving for who knows why all the reasons. I think one of them might just be Fewer people are getting married, more people are just shacking up. And so that may be one of the reasons, because we know that sin isn't on the, de on the decrease, right? So about 40% of first marriages end up in divorce. About 65% of second marriages end up in divorce. And if you made it to a third marriage, it's even worse. Roughly 70 or more percent of those don't make it all the way to the end. Why is that? That... The day that most all the little girls look forward to their whole lives, the day that should be the second greatest day in all of our lives after salvation, our wedding day, why is it that the day that provides all the hope of a joyous life going forward ends up with such a high percentage of failure? Maybe the question that 
I think we should consider, and we definitely will look at today, more appropriately would be, well, what are we supposed to do? What would God have us to do? How can we ensure that wherever you find yourself on this chart, that you do not become a part of that negative statistic? We understand from the scriptures all the way back ever since God created Adam and Eve, He instituted the issue of marriage. God made marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, God is the one who knows how it should work, right? He established marriage so that two people would, and this is the title for today's message, stay together. That they would stay together. Certainly, it would have worked much better with Adam and Eve before sin came into the picture. Once sin came into the picture, you can read Genesis chapter 3 and all of the consequences of sin, not to exclude the fact that there would be trouble between the man and woman relationship. And as we'll see, it's always sin that causes trouble in that kind of a relationship. And all of 1 Corinthians is about sin, specifically selfishness. When you think of yourself, me, mine, what am I getting, and you forget about the others, well, you're heading down a tough road. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 begins with a verse that says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And we studied on July 1st that that phrase, not to touch a woman, is used consistently in the scriptures to communicate intimate touch. In other words, literally what he's saying is, it's good if a man can remain unmarried. It's good for a man to not have that kind of interaction at all, actually. And the truth of the matter is, marriage isn't for everyone. That's okay. But not everybody can handle that. I mean, we are flesh, and the flesh does desire what it desires, and we know that any level, any kind of sexual intimacy outside of the bonds of a marriage between a man and a woman, well, that is sin. So, he deals with these issues, and we saw last time as we come through verses 7 and 8 and 9, specifically in verse number 8, he wrote specifically to the unmarried and the widows. He said, it's good for you, people who are single and or single again, if you can remain that way, even as I, Paul, who would have been unmarried at this time. But he says in verse number nine, if they can't contain, because it's hard, well, let them marry, because what you don't want to do is fall into sexual sin. So God provides marriage. It's a wonderful thing. But today, beginning in verse number 10, it starts off, and unto the married. So we are going to talk to the married folk today. But if you're not married today, you really need to not just tune out. If you're not married and you're young and you're hoping to be married one day, if you're not as young as you used to be and not married for any reason and hoping to be married again one day, well, stay tuned. Because the things that we learn in this passage are the things that you need to take into consideration right? When it becomes your time. When you are going to make this second greatest decision of all your life, you need to understand the gravity of it all and what the commitment really is. I mean, God does tell us, the Word of God is clear, marriage is good and holy. But you need to understand the rules. You need to understand the expectations, right? And so now is the time, single adult, right, before you say I do, to understand all that stuff. 
so that you increase exponentially your chances of having a joyful life in marriage as God intended. Okay, let's start in verse number 10. We're going to read through verse 16. You follow along as I read. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save, save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Let's go to the Lord, let's pray, and then let's jump into our study. Heavenly Father, as we look into this passage of Scripture, I do pray that your spirit would take your word and just make it very, very clear to us. Help us to see what your will is very clearly. Help us to see how we should be responding in the midst of circumstances that we might be encountering. Help us to understand your help, your strength, your guidance in all of these areas. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would, each and every one of us, as we look into the mirror of your word, as we see our lives as you see them, and as we analyze the things that probably for most all of us, are very private. That we would have the strength of character to be willing to submit ourselves to your word, that we would surrender our will to your will, and that we would then be able to really understand the joy that you have planned for us. Lord, many people struggle with these issues. Many of them do in secret. Many of them do in ways and times that nobody around them can have any idea. They need not tell anybody, but Lord, your word has the answer. Speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is going to break down into two sections. I haven't preached here for a month. Man, I'm going to be here a while. Y'all ready? I got a bunch stored up. Let's do it. First point, Christian marriages. That's where we're starting, verses 10 and 11. We're going to talk about Christian marriages. We know that because Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. All the way back in chapter number one, he writes and he addresses his audience unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. So he's writing to saved people that are in this entity, the body of Christ in that location, in that city. And he says in verse number 10, unto the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So what we're going to see here is that God's will is very clear, is it not? And we're going to see it's very clear in two simple ways. Number one, God hates divorce. God makes it very clear in his word that he hates divorce. You need to know that. We go back to the book of Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament, chapter number 2 and verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. 
Now the phrase put away is what we see in 1 Corinthians 7. Literally what it refers to is the legal action of taking your wife and putting her separate away from you. Sometimes it's referred to as giving a bill of divorcement or a writing of divorcement. It is the putting away of your spouse. And the Lord, the God of Israel saith, he hates that. He hates when that happens. And we're going to dig into it a little bit. See, in this case, when we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, See that the wife not depart, see that the husband putteth not away. Because in those days, the man was the one who had the legal right to initiate the divorce. Today, in our modern society, the wife could also initiate a divorce. A husband could just run away. We understand those things. Literally, these things apply across the platform of marriage. But God's will is clear. God hates this thing. In fact, in Mark chapter 10 and verse number 9, he says this, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Let not man destroy what God has builded. The thing, friends, that God has joined is a Christian marriage. That's the thing that he's joined. But we understand, listen, we live in a real life world and selfishness and sin and the flesh are always at work are they not and people have problems nice people good people good neighbors religious people god-fearing people have real problems we know that the percentage of christians in this category of divorces and failed marriages sadly is the same as the percentage of lost people in our society you would think that God-fearing Christian people with the standards and the faith and the word of God and the authority and the submission to him would have far greater success in their marriages than the unsaved world, but statistics show us that that's not the case. They're on par one with the other. So the Bible certainly ought to give us some guidelines, right? It ought to give us some advice. It ought to show us how and where we need to go, and what we need to do, of course, it does do that. The first thing you need to understand about God's will is he hates this thing of putting away. He hates it. And the second thing you need to understand is that as a Christian in a marriage, as, as two Christians, because we're dealing with Christian marriages with two believers, right? He made the marriage, right? So the second thing in your notes, don't be the one to cause division. Don't you be the one to cause the division, that's what he says. Let not the wife depart. Let not the husband put her away. So God's will is clear. He hates the division in any case, and he specifically addresses all of us, and he says, whoever you are, whatever role you play, don't you be the one that brings this to pass. I want you to look with me back in Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to look in verses 3 to 11. And we're going to see what Jesus Christ has to say about this subject. That's an interesting exchange that he has with the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 19, and we're starting verse number 3. It says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, Jesus, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now what you need to understand here is these Pharisees, right, they are the religious zealots. These are the guys who would have lived a very clean outward presentation. 
but inwardly they were so carnal. And Jesus addresses them as lost people. So there are people who would have been around the Word of God. They would have been around the temple. They would have been around the believing people. But they didn't have the reality of it in their lives. So this is the people that come to Jesus. And it says they came not really asking a question that they didn't understand and they needed clarified so that they could now live a holy life. No, they came to him tempting him. So these people aren't interested in the truth. These are people who are just looking for a loophole. You ever know anybody like that? I've got my problems. I've got my issues. I know what I want to do. I might even know what the Bible says. I don't really care. All I'm interested in is, is there a loophole for me? Is there a place where I can squeeze between the truths of God's word and get away with what I've determined I'm going to get away with? That's the Pharisees. That's the Pharisees. And the way they phrase it is, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Notice for, keyword every cause. Can, can we do it for any reason we want to? And if you took the time to look back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter number 24, you find that the Pharisees are referring to a situation from Deuteronomy 24, verse number 1. And the idea there is, and it's a perversion of it, actually. And in Deuteronomy 24, 1, I think you'd have it on the screen here, it says that if a man takes a wife and it comes to pass, she doesn't have any favor in his eyes, right? He's found some uncleanness in her. Well, that has a very specific application, but what they were doing is they were just determining um, I don't like the way she cleans the house. I don't like the way she cooks the food. I don't like the way she presents this. I don't like the way she does that. And they're just categorizing it themselves unilaterally as, I don't have favor in you, so I'm going to put you away. I, don't, I think that for some reason that you know, you're unclean in this area that I don't prefer, and so you can just move right along. And the Pharisees are looking for that kind of an excuse. So Jesus Christ certainly cannot be beaten in this kind of an exchange. And uh, verse number four, he begins to respond. And he answered and said unto them, which by the way is one of my favorite all-time Jesus responses, he says in several locations, have you not read? In other words, oh, religious man, don't you know what the scriptures say? I'm shocked that you would not know what the scriptures say. How's that possible that you would come to me with these questions not knowing what the scriptures say? And he goes on, he says that he which made them at the beginning, insert Genesis 2, made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Don't you know that? Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. And then he says what we saw also in Mark 10 earlier, where, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So in other words, Jesus says, look, that's not how God designed it. God did not design this so that you can just put away your wife for every cause. You made a vow to stay together. You made a promise before God that you would stay with this person for the rest of your life. And Jesus says, if you knew the scriptures, you would understand that that's how God designed it from the very beginning. Can I just tell you, that if you know the scriptures, you can find the answers to all sorts of things that you need in your life. You need to be a student of the scriptures. You need to be involved in the discipleship opportunities to learn the scriptures if you haven't learned them yet. But please understand that God's will certainly is to stay together, is it not? It's to stay together. 
Continuing in Matthew 19, verse 7 and 8. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command us, command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And Jesus said, right, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. He says, look, Moses didn't command that you do that. He allowed it. He allowed it because your sin entered in and messed up God's plan. God had a perfect plan. Your selfishness got in the way and life got so twisted that he said, okay, man, just you can divorce her. Um, This is a bad situation. This has never been God's plan for all of us. There is a difference between Moses commanded and Moses suffered. You need to understand that. God's will never changes. It is to stay together. But your sin required that an alternative option be made available. The separation. God never intended for that. He intends for us all to stay together for life. Can't you just hear the Pharisees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, but just tell us, when is it okay? I mean, get, okay, whatever. I know, I know. You're not supposed to. But, but can we get to the part where maybe... Remember, they were tempting him. So in verse number 9, Jesus said this, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. And so Jesus says, look, I'll have none of this separating going on at all with the one sole exception of physical infidelity in the marriage. If they're guilty of that, okay. If they're guilty of that, okay. Why that one thing? Why is that the one thing that the Lord says, okay, if they've gone that far, if they've sinned that egregiously, if they've done that terrible deed, you can go ahead and put her away, or him as the case might be. Why that one? Well, because if you remember, if you have been with us and you go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and chapter chapter 6 and verse 16, that the essence of a biblical marriage is any time you have this physical sexual union, flesh joining flesh, the two becoming one becomes in essence the joining of two lives together as one. We saw that in great detail back in that week when we studied that. And the act of fornication joining with another severs that physical union that you have with your spouse. Since that union is severed, well, you can just sever the entire marriage because in essence, that's what you've already done already. Now, his disciples are with him. Jesus has this exchange with the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't even really want to know the truth. They're just trying to tempt him. But notice Jesus Christ, every time somebody asks him a question that has to do with doctrine, regardless of the fact of their motives, Jesus always answers the doctrine. And that's what he did. Now the disciples are just spectators. They're just hanging with Jesus watching, right? And they jump in in verse 10. And in verse 10, his disciples say unto him, these are smart cookies, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to marry. (laughs) So the disciples' response is like this, whoa, you mean to tell me 
that there's no, when mama gets crazy, there's no way out? That's what you're telling me? I think it's probably better just stay single, Jesus. I mean, they were thinking. They understood real life. They understood that marriage is hard. They understood that marriage requires sacrifice. It requires work. They understood that we're all sinners and we all do dumb things. And Jesus responds to that. In verse 11, he said unto them, all men cannot receive this saying. It's good to not marry. All men can't receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. And so truly, yeah, it is true. It is good. If you can remain single, sure, that's great. But not everybody can handle that. And that's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7, 8, and 9 that we referred to a little bit earlier. So what you can expect in a marriage, if you're not yet married and looking to marry, you can expect conflict. Uh, really, there's only one thing that you can absolutely expect. <laughs> you can expect conflict. Uh, you know, the honeymoon ends eventually. And uh, real life begins and you know, fellas, you've, you've dressed up nice and put the good smelling stuff on for a while and eventually you might not keep doing that. And, you know, everybody does their, you know, best foot forward for a while and eventually you go back to who you really are and, you know, life happens and, well, then you need the Bible. <laughs> I mean. But can I tell you, and this is in your notes, this is important. You need to stay together because your Christian marriage pictures Christ in the church. You need to stay together because your Christian marriage pictures Christ in the church. And the fact that your marriage should last a lifetime pictures the eternal security of the believer in Jesus Christ and his relationship with Jesus Christ. When your marriage, Christians, goes south and is severed, your picture now to the world is heresy. Your picture to the world is false doctrine. Your picture to the world is something might be able to happen that can sever your relationship with your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord doesn't take kindly to you messing up his picture. In fact, the, Moses, back in the Old Testament, the first time that he smote the rock and the water came out, and the second time he was told to speak to the rock. Well, the Bible tells us that that rock was Christ in picture and type, Right? And so he smote the rock the first time because Jesus Christ in his first coming was smitten of men. But the second time, Jesus Christ is not going to be smitten of men. Nobody's going to take a rod to his back ever again. Nobody's going to pull his beard out anymore and mock him anymore. When he comes back the second time, you better fall on your knees and speak to him. Moses smites the rock the second time and God kept him out of the promised land. Moses lost the rights to take Israel into the promised land because he didn't, he didn't keep the picture. You better keep the picture. You better keep the picture. Now, it's interesting because verse 11 is a very interesting verse. It says, But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So what we see is, is that there can be times in an effort to save a struggling marriage, you actually might need to separate for a time. But, and if she depart, there's some conditions. Don't hook up with anybody else. Remain unmarried. Or be reconciled to your husband. The idea would be, okay, you might 
have it so bad right now, you can't look at or talk to that person. So take a brief pause, figure it out, and then go back and reconcile. That's the goal, right? But even with that said, you might want to remind yourself back in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 5 where it says, defraud ye not one the other. The defrauding is the withholding of a physical relationship within the bounds of marriage. Don't do that. Accept it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency, your inability to control yourselves so that you become overcome with lust and then fall into even greater sin. So, separation, listen, anytime you are severing what God intended to be the, the union of the marriage, well, it's risky, so you better be careful. This is the Christian audience, verses 10 and 11. Let's go to point number two, second category, mixed marriages. Mixed marriages. And the context clearly is a believer married to an unbeliever, right? If any brother, Christian brother, hath a wife that believeth not, so we have a new scenario. Or the woman which hath an husband that believeth not. Right? So this is the context. And the thing I want you to understand is, and this is in your notes, that God does not approve of spiritually mixed marriages. Please understand, we are not talking about racially mixed marriages. We are not talking about culturally mixed marriages. We are talking about spiritually mixed marriages. And you go back to the Old Testament where God forbade that the Israelites would marry the people of the other nations around them. Why? Because they were pagan, idol-worshiping people. There's a phrase, the outlandish women that stole King Solomon's heart and made him unfaithful to Jehovah God. They were outlandish, meaning they were women from other lands, from outside the land of Israel, right? And God refers to this thing called the mixed multitude, where the Israelites' believers were mixed all in together through these marital relationships with these pagan, idol-worshiping nations. And over and over in the Old Testament, God forbids that, that the Israelites, the believers, would go, and that this is the phrase he would use, don't marry strange wives. And all the guys said, Don't marry strange women. Come on, y'all. You don't even need to know the typology to know that's true. The context is foreign wives. Hey, wait a minute. I got one of those. <laughs> so the context is not cultural. The context is not racial. The context is spiritual, right? It's spiritual. The problem at Corinth is that before Paul showed up, they were all pagans. These are Gentiles, right? They were all lost until Paul showed up and preaches Christ and a bunch of them got saved. And so what you had in the situation was you had people from Corinth who were married. They were lost. They were married. And then Paul comes and preaches and one of them gets saved. Now one of them is saved and one of them is not. Not because it was a carnal Christian who married an unsaved person. It's because they were both unsaved and one of them got saved. 
Now one of them got saved and they're thinking, hey, I'm not really supposed to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, so should I ditch them? I mean, what should I do? And Paul says, no, 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 no. Stay together. That's the issue. That's what we see over and over again. They were going to bail on their marriage because now they, oh, now what a blessing. Now you know Jesus Christ, you're going to bail on your marriage. And they were, they were confused. They were working through these issues. Okay, so remember that God's plan for marriage, well, it's forever. But this scenario that we're talking about, well, it's unusual. I mean, God never intended for saved and lost people to willingly enter into a marriage because that's spiritually mixed up. It's confusion. And that, you track that word through the scriptures, it's trouble. It's confusion. And this is something, this issue here, is something that was not previously addressed in the scriptures. So God had to further reveal some new truth in chapter 7 that had not previously been revealed in the totality of scripture. So we have verse number 12 in that unusual statement where Paul says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. And you read that at first reading, and you think to yourself, oh, well, Paul's just winging it here. <laughs> the Lord's not in it. This isn't the word of the Lord. This is the word of Paul, and, you know, take it or leave it. I don't like it, so I'm going to leave it. I mean, that's what some people want to do with the Bible. That is absolutely not what's happening here. Absolutely not. This is not just Paul's opinion. This is God's revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit given to Paul at this time in history as he is writing the new scripture. Just for context, you can see also, just flip a page in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse number 25 where he says, for example, we'll see this when we get to it later. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord. In other words, the Lord didn't say anything specific about this issue I'm going to deal with in verse 25. He says, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. So Paul's like, you know, the Lord didn't really address this before, but I think He's leading me to help you understand this truth you need to know. You go to the very last verse, verse 40 of chapter 7. He goes on and he says, but she's happier if she so abide after my judgment. This is Paul's judgment. He says, oh, I think also that I have the Spirit of God. And the problem with Christian people today is they think that Paul didn't have the Spirit of God. Paul says, I suppose that they would do this. And you say, well, I suppose you're wrong. Well, I'm going to suppose he was right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you. I suppose that what he had to say is actually what God actually wanted us to do. Yes, God is giving us more information on this subject. And we're going to see that in three specific ways. The first one, letter A, the believer's promise. The believer's promise. And so we're talking about staying together, right? If you're a brother, if you have a wife that believes not, if she's willing to stick it out, well, then don't put her away. And if you're the woman and you have a husband and he's not really a believer, but he's willing to stick it out, well, don't leave. Because when that couple makes that marriage vow, listen, even unsaved people make a vow, typically in a church, in some way, form, or fashion, certainly to each other, many times even before God, even if they don't know God, right? You, you typically see in a church, they're making their marriage vows and it'll go something like, you know, in sickness and in health and in poverty and in wealth and forsaking all others, I commit myself solely unto you 
till death do us part. Right? Isn't that typically what we see in marriages? And so it's a promise that is made. Even lost people make those promises. But now, you're saved. Now you know the Lord. Don't you think you should keep your word? Don't you think you ought to keep what you said? Don't you think you ought to keep your promises? Aren't you glad the Lord keeps his promises? Don't you want to be like him? In other words, and this is in your notes, very simply, I've already said it, Christian people should keep their word. Christian people, if you are the one saved member in your household, you above all people should be a man or a woman of your word. Amen? Amen. And so God takes that sort of thing very seriously. I gave you a couple of references we'll look at very quickly. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse number 2. The Lord says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven. And thou upon the earth, therefore let thy words be few. Jump down to verse number four. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and pay not. You could take that, single adult, and consider it is better for you never to make a marriage contract than to make one and break it, right? Better that you never even make the vow then should you make it and not keep it? God is listening. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all. He's not talking about using cuss words. That's not what he's talking about. He's, he's saying you shouldn't have to be the kind of person that has to put your hand on a Bible and raise your right hand and say, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth this time right? So let's go on. And he says, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, neither uh, shalt thou swear by thy head, because they canst not make one hair uh, white or black. But what's he trying to say? Well, but let your communication be, yea, yea. Nay, nay. In other words, when you say yes, mean it to be yes. Your word is your bond. When you say no, you mean it to be no. Don't say yes when you mean no, and don't say no when you mean yes, and don't cross your fingers in your pocket and wink at people, and don't do those things. You don't need to have a specific time where you say, I swear this time I'm telling the truth, and then go off and lie about it. Be people of your word, Jesus is saying. So the believer's promise is, this is in your notes, never initiate separation if you are the believer in the relationship if your unsaved spouse is pleased to dwell with you then you should be pleased to dwell with him or her too and you might say well I'm not pleased you have no idea what I go through you're right fair enough I don't know what you go through but I know this you still need to honor your promise that you made to that marriage. You need to honor your promise. As much as it lies on you, you need to honor your promise. But I know that that's hard. I know we live in a world where there are real drama. I know that some of you are maybe going through things that you think to yourself, okay, I get it, this is what God wants, but my goodness, life is miserable. You may be thinking these things. So to help you, Maybe what you need is just to adjust your perspective a little bit, okay? And that's letter B in our notes. The believer's purpose. The believer's purpose. We're going to jump down to verse 16. 
For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Wouldn't that be glorious? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Isn't that really what you want more than anything else? Because the believer's purpose in this mixed marriage, right? It's no different than his purpose in all of life. Last time I checked, marriage is a part of life. God's purpose for you, Christian, is ministry. It's for you to be involved in ministry. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, and he did, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live, that would be all of us that have responded to his offer of free, the free gift of eternal life, we now have this life, we now live, they which live, the saved people, should not henceforth live unto themselves. Don't be selfish. Don't put yourself over the community. We is greater than me, not the other way around, right? Should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And then how exactly is that fleshed out? We'll jump down to verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That means that every single one of us that have received the gospel, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and received eternal life, have been given a job to do. And our job is to get the gospel out to everybody else so that they can know. Can you remember back to what you were like one day before you got saved? Can you remember then? Now, it's been a while for me, but I haven't forgotten. It's not a pretty picture. And that reminds me to continue to go and to share with other people. And how do you know, O wife, that God won't use you to see that man get saved? And vice versa. That's your purpose. That's what he wants us to see. That's what he wants you to understand. Listen, are you going to bail on your promise and purpose so quickly just because you're a little uncomfortable? So the believer's purpose is, this is in your notes, always influence others. Always influence others. So a saved husband has the advantage of the leadership role in the home. This is something that was given to him in creation. God decided this is the way a family is going to be run. We have the story in Acts chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer, and he wants to get saved, and he runs into Paul and Silas, right, in verse 31. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Great question, right? People ever ask you that question? Not too often. If it ever is, the Bible has the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then he adds, and thy house, and thy house. Well, there are some people who um, would want to teach something that is called household salvation. Uh, the Reformed theologians would say that there is this thing that God makes covenants with families. Isn't that handy? <laughs> and so if you're saved, you can just know automatically that all of your kids and everybody's going to be okay because you're saved and God makes covenants with families and they go to Acts 16.31. That's not at all what Acts 16.31 is about. Acts 16.31 is simply the idea that the man, the head of the household, is going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his life is going to change radically and he's going to influence his family and share the gospel with them so that if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they also will be saved. That's all it means. He's going to extend the ministry to his family. And ultimately, his family in that story believes and they all get baptized. It's wonderful. 
So can I tell you, hey, Christian men, Christian men, if you find yourself in this situation, your wife is not currently a believer. Lead your household. Be the leader God made you to be. You have a distinct advantage. Lead your household to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, God made man to be the head of the home, right? That's what he did. Uh, a saved wife, on the other hand, in a family with an unsaved husband, may not have the role of leadership, but let me just tell you something. Don't kid yourself. Women carry the major position of influence in a family. I mean, you know, it's football season. Those guys are going to run and score those touchdowns and the camera's going to focus in on them and their dad worked with them for 15 years teaching them the skills of football and they're going to say, hi, mom. That's what they're going to do when they score that touch. That's what they're going to do. Listen, man, everybody loves their mama. Even people who don't love their mama love their mama. Listen, the mothers have influence. Don't kid yourself. And specifically, when the wife is saved and the husband is not, we also have the same word from the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, the husbands obey not the word. If you're a saved woman and you have a husband who does not obey the word of God, here's your advice. They also may be, they may without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So, hey, ladies, if you find yourself in this challenging situation and it happens, I understand it's not easy. But the Bible is very clear. If you find yourself married to an unbeliever, who is happy to continue to be married to you, that's awesome. Exercise your purpose. Make your home your number one ministry priority. That does not mean, wives, that you usurp his role as the leader of the household. You still are in subjection unto him. God has given him a role. He has given you a role. You may have biblical understanding that he does not have, Live in fear and in reverence to the Word of God. Live a holy life and allow that to communicate to Him the reality of true Christianity with the hope that He exercises His free will and surrenders to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as well. That's how He wants you to live. It's not always going to be easy, especially when in a marriage you have two people one saved, one lost, who have two extremely different worldviews. One is about me and money and power and fun and recreation and whatever it is that makes me happier. And the other is about the Lord and others and purpose and ministry and serving. That is a tough situation to be in. Let's not forget that we skipped over verse 14 and go back and look at that because this is an often misunderstood verse. For the unbelieving husband, notice, is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. Hmm. What is that all about? What in the world does that mean? Well, let's break it down. First and most importantly, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that all family members are automatically saved. 
That's the household salvation thing that we talked about. That's not what it means. And the reason I know that it's not what it means is because sanctified does not mean saved. Sanctified is used interchangeably with holy, and it means to be set apart. It means to be set apart for a specific purpose. So those of you that have taken how to study the Bible and you know some of the rules of proper biblical hermeneutics, you understand that there is a rule, a law of first mention. And at the very first time that the word sanctified shows up is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 3 where it says, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Well, the seventh day is just set apart to be a special day and it ultimately becomes the Sabbath day and it's revered as holy. Again, holy meaning sanctified, set apart. No physical work was, was to be done during the Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday for that Old Testament Jew. We also see it in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 12, just an example. Thou shalt set apart, it's the exact same word, sanctify unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix and every firstling that comes, out of, comes of a beast which thou hast. The males shall be the Lord's. And so you have this idea that they're, just, they're set apart for something special. It's used interchangeably with the word holy. I gave you Matthew 6, 19, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed, holy be thy name. So what it doesn't mean is, one saved, all saved. <laughs> that would be handy. That's not the way it works. Everybody has a free will. Everybody has to decide from themselves. Okay, what does it mean then? Well, what verse 14 does mean is a couple of different things. Firstly, you need to understand that the unsaved family enjoys blessings from God. The unsaved family that has a saved family member in it finds that that whole household enjoys blessings from God. Do you remember we've seen over and over again this marriage thing keeps being referred to as the two become one. The two become one. And as the two become one, okay, and flesh joins flesh and they have a family and they have children and they live as a single family unit, God views them as a single family unit. That is not in respect to salvation. That is in respect to how God is going to deal with this household. God will deal with a believing household differently than he will deal with an unbelieving household because there are different goals, there are different purposes in their life. And so the unsaved members of a family that has a saved member in it, right, is going to get some blessings. And can I just say, whether they recognize it or not, the unsaved family members in such a household, they really need to be thankful. They really need to be thankful for that believing member that is providing a covering of blessing of God on their family because of that believer, not because of you, because of that believer. And that's one of the blessings. That's one of the things that God is trying to communicate. They're sanctified by their wife. They're, they're set apart as a result. And the second thing is they're set apart primarily, I might say, to hear the gospel. They're set apart to hear the gospel. And they're set apart to hear the gospel from the saved family member. That's how they're set apart, right? This is a huge blessing. So if you're, if you're, a, if you're a young person, if you're a teenager, for example, and you grew up in a Christian home, maybe not all of you did, but if you grew up in a Christian home, your parents are saved and they brought you to church whether you liked it or not. And uh, listen, you have received blessings in your home and in your life because your parents loved the Lord and wanted the best for you. Now, I know it sometimes there have been thoughts in your mind thinking, well, this isn't a blessing. This is kind of a drag. <laughs> uh, that's an error. I'm sorry. 
you are not looking at the big picture because the big picture is if you were just an unsaved kid with unsaved parents and you never knew about these things, just think where your life would really be. Just think of all the consequences and all the ways and the frustrations of life that would bombard you if you were just a member of an unsaved family that had no influence whatsoever from a saved mother or a saved father who's trying to instill truth into your life. And the key word in this verse to notice that is the word now. It says, elsewhere your children unclean, but now are they holy. Now means now. It doesn't mean later at some time. It doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to be saved. It doesn't mean any of that. It means now. Now they are set apart. Now, not in eternity. Now, not automatically saved, right? Now they are set apart to be able to be blessed by God. And among the blessings will be the communication of the gospel from the saved family member. Unsaved families don't have that. They don't have that benefit. Where and when will the children of unsaved parents ever get to hear or experience the gospel and its blessings? Well, only when we take it to them in evangelism. That's it. But come on, you cannot compare that with the influence of a godly Christian life lived in your home day in and day out. That's way more powerful. That's why the purpose of a believer is ministry to the lost, especially the lost of his own household. Yes, they can accept it or they can reject it. They have a free will. But you can stick it out because who knows what will happen one day. Okay, let's get the last point. We'll do it very quickly. Finally, letter C, the believer's peace, verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart of his own accord, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. This is also a new revelation. This is something that was not previously addressed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God adds another acceptable criteria for the end of a marriage. So this, therefore, chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians becomes the final word in the revelation of God on this subject. He originally said, you're married forever. Then he added, uh, except for fornication. Now he adds this one. So in your notes, I put this. You really need to get this. The only biblical grounds for ending a marriage are death, of course, defrauding, previously discussed, or desertion. Since, in essence, the biblical marriage is flesh joining flesh, the marriage, therefore, essentially ends when flesh leaves flesh. Death, defrauding, desertion. Now, legally, there's some paperwork that needs to take place, right? But if the unbeliever departs, you, believer, don't initiate this. The unbeliever of their own accord says, I'm out, I'm tired of this Jesus stuff, I can't stand it no more, I'm gone. Well, listen, you can't, tie a piano to their leg, I mean, they're going to go, what are you going to do? I mean, and the Lord's not holding you hostage for the rest of your life because their free will led them to make the worst possible decision. You're not suffering the rest of your life. God has called you to peace, is what he says. And as a result, this is in your notes, you can return to individual service. You can now once again 
enjoy being single again and maybe even marry again. And if you come back as we continue through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we will see specifically how all that plays out. This chapter is about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And there are parameters for all of these things. But at this point, the believer is at peace. At this point, the believer is free to serve the Lord without distraction. You might glance forward to verses 32 and 33 of this chapter where he says, I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. So God sets you free. You're not in bondage anymore. The unbeliever ditched you. Now you're free to care for the things of the Lord. And that's really not the original plan, but it's where you find yourself. He brings peace to your life. You know, it's really not that hard. We only make it hard when we're selfish. We only make it hard when you say, I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm not... Well, look, we all live in that world. I get it. But at some point, we've got to learn to die to ourselves. We've got to live to something bigger than ourselves. So the question I'd like for you all to ask yourselves, are you fully surrendered to the will of God? Has God fully declared His will in this case? I think so. Stay together. Make it work. Put God first. Trust Him to handle the details. If you need help, ask for help. Get some counsel. Get some advice. Do whatever you've got to do. But start by being faithful to God, being faithful to His Word daily, in prayer, his body, the church, Bible study, grow. Be faithful to these things. And he'll work out the rest. He really, really will. And can I just say, if you happen to be within the sound of this message and you are the unbelieving spouse in such a relationship, you are blessed to have a spouse who is a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're still wrestling with it. Can I just ask you, how long do you expect to continue to enjoy God's blessings on your home while you as an individual continue to reject Him in your heart. If you're in this room and that happens to be you, well then I invite you even now, surrender your heart to the Lord, let Him change you, and live the joyful life He has planned for you for the rest of your days. Let's pray together.